This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. bunch of virus headlines. Tim and I just kind of went over them. New York City warnings supply may run out this week. More than a quarter of New York State residents don't plan to get vaccinated against the virus. That's according to a poll released today. I think it's a Dow Jones story. We've got, what, 95.7 million cases, deaths surpassing 2 million, and about more than 44 million shots have been given worldwide. And one more big one, 400,000 deaths just here in the United States alone. The numbers are really staggering. So let's get into it with Dr. Harold Paz. He's the Executive Vice President and Chancellor for Health Affairs at The Ohio State University, CEO of Wexner Medical Center. Uh, this is a massive enterprise. It includes hospitals, College of Medicine, research, and more. He was the former Chief Medical Officer over at Aetna. He joins us on the phone once again from Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Uh, Paz, uh, nice to have you here back on Bloomberg. How are you? What are you seeing? Give us an idea, because I'm feeling a little bit down about all of the headlines that are out there. Uh, well, it's it's great talking with you again, Carol. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Um, so, you know, we are at a point now where, as you just described, we're seeing the cases go up uh, nationally, and certainly the this mortality rate that you you mentioned, the number of deaths, is just staggering. But at the same time, we're encouraged by the vaccinations, and here in Columbus uh, this morning at the at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center, we vaccinated our first uh, patient who was 100 years old. This wow. is our, our uh, in the state of Ohio, we had 1A uh, tier 1A where we vaccinated our healthcare workers, and we've worked through that group. We're finishing that up this week, and now we're moving on to the elderly and those at greatest greatest risk. And that's um, around 7 a.m. this morning. Uh, this individual is our first patient. And it's so encouraging because the more we can vaccinate, uh, the more we can uh, stop uh, the spread um, based on all the clinical evidence that we saw. If we do that and everybody wears a mask, those two things combined, we can have a huge impact on preventing people from winding up in the hospital. If we could turn this into um, a viral infection that, you know, uh, gives people the the uh, the same symptoms as a cold, we would be looking at this very differently. And mm-hmm. keep in mind, a lot of colds, you know, out there are caused by a coronavirus. It's just that this coronavirus uh, causes something very different that we call COVID-19. And that's what fills up hospitals. That's what makes people so sick. And that's what gives them symptoms that linger even after their hospitalization. And we've heard so much about that. So that's why the vaccines are incredibly important, but not letting our guard down, continuing to wear a mask. That's going to be in our future for a while. I think the hard part about hearing that is is, is we've proven as a country that we're not willing to, to do those things. And that's why we're seeing such a such a surge right now. I mean, we're not even following uh, healthcare guidance for being around one another during the holidays and potentially why we're seeing the surge right now. Um, What makes you optimistic about we're going to change our behavior in the next few months? 
Well, you know, it, I think more and more of it is the messaging um, and the and making sure that all of us, no matter what what walk of life we come from, no matter what type of work we do, we provide leadership for uh, others in our community to understand just how important this is. Um, and, and again, it's not one or the other. We all have to wear masks because we know that masks are very effective in stopping the spread. But we also have to all make sure that we get vaccinated. And I know there are individuals with vaccine hesitancy, but at the same time, it's so encouraging to see so many people come forward. And and again, you know, like you've described, we're, uh, we want to make sure that we have the supplies available as more and more of these um, vaccines are approved uh, for emergency use authorization that we can bring them forward to vaccinate everybody that wants a vaccine right away. So I have a question for you. Um, if the president comes to office uh, tomorrow and part of his plan, including, I know he's talked about vac- vaccinations for a, a large number of people, but what if he said, hey, for the next month, we're going to provide money for everyone. We need you to just shut down, don't do anything, back off society. Could we eradicate the virus pretty quickly? Uh, with a total shutdown? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there... <laughs> There, there, there's, there's a lot to that. We've seen examples. I'm taking the economic picture, and I'm assuming the government's going to take care of everybody. I know I'm making big assumptions, yeah. but I'm just saying, yeah. I mean, could we, could we get rid of it? I, I think, so can we get rid of it versus can we continue to take all these preventative actions? And we've seen examples in other countries where they've done as right. close to the kind of shutdown you're describing, Carol, yeah. and then they take the brakes off. And when they take the brakes off, what do we see? We see that the cases go back up. I think, without a doubt, we have to do more to make sure that we stop uh, the spread. And we know that wearing masks are incredibly important to do that. But at the same time, we have to recognize that the minute we stop doing these things, it comes right back at us. And right now, we need to be especially concerned because of uh, the, uh, the mutations that we're hearing a lot about that make the virus more contagious. Um, and uh, here at, at Ohio State University at the Wexner Medical Center, our scientists have discovered two new variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, that causes COVID-19. One variant is uh, that carries a mutation is identical to the one that was identified in the UK. And another one that we're calling the Columbus strain was discovered here um, mm-hmm. in uh, Ohio around uh, the end of December. And uh, again, the concern is that that makes the virus more contagious. And it, as it's more contagious, more people get sick. Um, and if, you know, if we don't take this seriously, then the concern is going to be that the virus continues to mutate and makes the vaccines less effective, which is something we just don't want to have happen. Right. Um, Dr. Paz, I want to I talk about the, um, the new variant that you guys discovered sure. um, at, at the medical center there. Um, how do you do that? How do you discover a new variant? Yeah, well, it starts with, you know, uh, our lab to date, since we started doing uh, testing, has done nearly a half a million samples. And what we do is each month our lab performs sequencing of the viral genome, the RNA in the virus, to assess whether there is a mutation. And up to now, we've already um, uh, analyzed nearly 225 different strains uh, by sequencing. Um, we got really interested in this when we heard about the UK virus. Um, you know, I, we had heard about the case in Colorado, this individual who hadn't traveled. And um, it opened the question, 
could the virus spontaneously mutate in ways that where it looked like it may have been through travel? In fact, it was spontaneous mutation. So this one, this one variant um, that we identified uh, carries a mutation that is identical to the uh, UK strain, but it arose um, in a virus strain backbone that was already present in the United States. So this mm. might suggest that some of these mutations are becoming uh, are more independent in different parts of the world. Obviously, we need a lot more research to continue working down this path. The takeaway message is that this virus continues to mutate, um, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We knew that the virus would mutate, um, and seeing the pace at which it's doing it only underscores the importance of making sure that we vaccinate and we continue to wear masks so that we can reduce spread. And the more we can do that, the more we have the effect on, on diminishing hospitalizations and diminishing individuals, the number of individuals that become sick. And, you know, the good news is, and I want to just, again, um, offer some good news. Uh, this week, we're seeing fewer patients in the hospital here mm, at the Wexner great. Medical Center. Great. Uh, we're seeing the numbers going down. Um, we've been on a downward trend now for the past several weeks, and we're getting back to numbers that I haven't seen in a while and uh, less patients on mechanical ventilators. So that's very positive. Um, again, not clear what, you know, part of it is we hope all these great measures, uh, wearing masks, people are getting vaccinated. We've done now 13,000 vaccinations, and we have nearly another 1,100 scheduled right now to start administering. So this combination of things, plus some theories that, you know, as the virus becomes more contagious, it may become um, less likely to cause illness. Again, a lot more research that has to be borne out. But at the end of the day, what we know is that we have to stop the spread and we can't just depend on the vaccines because we still have a long way to go, as, as you've heard and you've reported, until we get enough people vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. And that number that people have said, you know, minimum 70% of the population, others have suggested even over 80% of the population until we get to herd immunity. Wow. So vaccinations are critical, right. but it's those masks that'll get us to where we need to be until we can get that herd immunity for everyone. So mutations, I've got to just stick with it for a second. So sure. is there a point where, you know, these, from what I understand, these mutations just make it more infectious. Is there a point where the virus becomes more lethal? You know, I'm just wondering, is, is there a progression of mutations that all of a sudden it becomes something a lot more dangerous um, than we're talking about the mutations today? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I think that, um, there, there are things we know about viruses, not this one necessarily, because we're learning as we go along. But, you know, take a very contagious virus like the mumps virus um, or the measles virus, right? So yeah. um, uh, very contagious. Chicken pox. Um, and, you know, just because a virus is, is very contagious doesn't mean that it's, it's highly lethal. Right. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, we, I believe personally, that we can't just assume anything, that we have to take steps to mitigate the spread of this virus um, by taking all the precautions that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's how we're really going to get this thing under control. It's not by assuming that as the virus becomes um, uh, more contagious, it becomes less lethal. Okay. Um, the no, and you've seen the reports from some parts of the country right. where hospital beds are overflowing. 
and they don't have enough ICUs. I, we just can't be in that situation. I we know. can't be in that situation as a nation. Any of the news alerts about LA and the LA area, it's just really troubling. Um, Dr. Paz, thank you so much. Always good to get your thoughts. He is uh, the Chief Executive Officer at Wexner Medical Center, Chancellor of Health Affairs at The Ohio State University, on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, we've talked about this before about finance professionals and firms continuing to head south, so much so that a long elusive dream of uh, the Miami area becoming Wall Street South, well, it could be coming right reality maybe it, it could be i have to say i have to admit, i've never been to miami oh my god what is wrong with i know you? like i feel like i have to do a work <laughs> trip now because everybody is just talking about miami banks a, are moving there it's a fun place to be all right let's find out how fun especially for finance professionals here with this story it's in the current issue of bloomberg business week magazine jonathan levin he's miami bureau chief at bloomberg news he's on the phone from miami a city that tim has never been to also with us is business week editor joe weber on the access line from brooklyn i don't even know where to be begin here. I can't believe he hasn't been to Miami, but other people are going, Joel. Do we have Joel? Uh, uh, cold Brooklyn. Uh, right there now. we go. We got you now, Joel. Come on oh, in. I was just saying I would rather be anywhere than cold <laughs> New York right now. <laughs> exactly. And uh, Miami sounds yeah. pretty great. Um, Jonathan, when you look out the window in your in the Miami uh, Bureau of Bloomberg News right now, how many cranes do you see? How 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 happening is Miami? I, I don't have the best line of sight for that, but I can I can report I see one crane out my window right now. Okay, <laughs> but that's the, the the bigger story here is that you know a lot of Wall Street is eyeing uh, a, a warmer locale, and that is near you. Um, and and what's that doing to the city? What are the vibes down there as Wall Street sort of looks south? Yeah, I mean, there is a palpable sense that something is happening. You know, you know, for this story, we talk to real estate people. We talk to people uh, who uh, sell ultra-luxury cars down here, and they told us things like, you know, we've never had a better, a better December. Uh, and, of, of course, there are these announcements that have been coming one after the next that you kind of just have to pay attention to, right? These are trailblazers and trendsetters. We, you know, we had the news that Elliott Management is moving its, quarter, its headquarters to Palm Beach. Uh, Tom Barrick's Colony Capital uh, doing something similar. And then you had other shops like Blackstone and Citadel opening sizable offices down here. So, again, these are like trend-setting names that even if the absolute numbers in terms of headcount aren't huge right now, a lot of people are saying you know, these are trends that you have to pay attention to. These are guys, when they move, other people start to look to do the same. Well, and listen, there's trend-setting names that people start to pay attention to, and then there's trend-setting names that everybody really pays attention to. And we've talked a lot about the Goldman Sachs um, reports, that they are getting ready to set up some shops down there. Um, Tell us about that, because I do feel like, Jonathan, that's something that could be a game-changer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that's the name in, in finance and banking, of course. And uh, uh, we reported uh, several weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, that Goldman was looking basically in the 
Fort Lauderdale to Palm Beach corridor to do something uh, with their asset management division. And, you know, our, our understanding uh, based on our reporting was this is not going to be just another uh, little satellite office where private banking folks can pop in. They already have something like that in the, in the Palm Beach area and all over the country, frankly. But our understanding was that this is, was going to be a significant uh, chunk of that asset management division. So, you know, really uh, uh, something to look forward to, possibly. They, our, our reporting tells us that a decision has not been made. It's possible that, that they don't go that route. They're also looking uh, at potentially doing something in Texas. But the fact that a name like that is even looking, right, uh, is eye-opening for the rest of the industry. I love that so much of uh, this story is playing out on Twitter in real time. And I think a big part of that is because of the migration from Silicon Valley and, and also because of the Miami mayor, Francis Suarez, who, as you write, has been on a quest to diversify even further beyond Wall Street South, who has just been tweeting prolifically about luring tech companies to the region. Um, what is the mayor doing in order to try to attract talent and, and people to this area amidst a pandemic? Yeah, so, you know, this has been a push for um, Miami-Dade County, Broward County, and Palm Beach County for probably the better part of, of a decade. And here in, my, in Miami-Dade County, they have an organization uh, set up, the Miami Downtown Development Authority, uh, and they have grants, uh, and they roll out the red carpet for folks like this. They really, really want these jobs. But uh, about, uh, let's say, Six weeks ago, give or, give or take, the Miami, the city of Miami Mayor Francis Suarez started interacting uh, with uh, some Silicon Valley VC types on Twitter, and it just started taking off. It was something about about the moment that he tapped into by simply by by responding uh, to uh, to somebody and saying, "How can I help?" And uh, you know. I think the sentiment among a lot of folks in finance and in tech, too, is that they don't feel wanted anymore. You know, <laughs> we, you know we can argue about whether or not that's actually true, but you hear this from a lot of sources, right? That like, oh, New York just doesn't appreciate us anymore. San Francisco doesn't appreciate us anymore. And here's Miami, who is just dying to have these folks. Uh, as, you know, exemplified in flesh and blood by city of Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. And you can see the contrast. And I think that's why that uh, uh, those tweets have resonated. And it's always it always kind of seems like places with like really favorable tax jurisdictions are the ones with like <laughs> the chips on their shoulders like this. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking of, of Texas in the same way, which has done a really good job of, of attracting people. And, you know, but Jonathan, you know, like for all the perks, like the, the tax, the taxes that I just mentioned and the great weather. This kind of thing has happened before in Texas or in uh, in Florida, and it hasn't always stuck. So, what it might be different this time around? Yeah, well, I mean, the real difference is the uh, the revolu the work from home revolution during during the pandemic. A lot of people really think that uh, companies have taken a step back and reevaluated where their employees need to be uh, in order to get the job done. Uh, you know. 
these clusters like New York for finance and San Francisco for tech, they obviously took decades uh, to develop and you know, we're not going to undo them in a matter of months or, or years, but, um, you know, little by little, if companies start realizing, as they seem to have started to do during the pandemic, that um, they don't need everybody in the headquarters to get the job done, they might start making decisions more based on, for instance, uh, lifestyle and, right. and just letting employees be where they want to be. But just right, you know, remember like the tech companies who said, yeah, you can, you can like live anywhere, but... Um, um, we might adjust your salaries, and so there will be a pay differential um, if you're if you're working there for a financial firm. Yeah, right? and if your taxes are lower too. Maybe they'll take that into account. Exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of things. Um, would you move south? Yes. In a heartbeat. I, w- I would not. No, I mean not in a heartbeat, but I mean. It's January in New York, Carol. Like, I'll move anywhere. Spring is coming. It, it is. It will come. All right, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Jonathan Levin, Miami bureau chief at Bloomberg News. That story in the current issue online and on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, um, big day for another two of the big banks here. We're talking about Goldman Sachs and Bank of America. We did get some details uh, on their latest quarter. Bloomberg News finance reporter Shanali uh, Basak, Wall Street reporter, I should say, at Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. She's with us on uh, the phone in our New York City bureau. So, Shanali, two more banks. Uh, let's let's talk about Goldman first. Uh, it was all about the deal makers there at Goldman. Absolutely. And you saw really record performance here in net revenue at their investment banking division. Goldman ended last year as the number one advisor on mergers and acquisitions, but they also blew it out of the water when it came to underwriting IPOs, SPACs, and other sort of equity offerings. So they had a lot on their side, um, but let's, you know, it all depends on how the economy goes from here on how much more that deal activity keeps going onward. Yeah, well, speaking of onward, I mean, what did we learn this morning from the big banks as far as how they are thinking about 2021 and putting 2020 behind them? The big question here is investment and how they gain share and how they keep growing, right? So some of the banks, like Bank of America, over and over on the conference call, they got really pressed about their cost base and their expense ratio. If you're a bank like Bank of America, you have branch networks all across the country, you're worried about COVID-related expenses, the PPP-related expenses, childcare for your workers, so you have a lot of money to uh, need to spend right now. However, they also want to grow. They want to get much, much more tech-enabled. And over at Goldman Sachs, which really was able to keep a lid on their costs, they were actually able to expand their headcount investing in new business lines and technology. So how do, and Bank of America, how do they stack up? And I always feel like they're diff, like they're a different beast, aren't they? They really are, because so much of their profit is tied to the United States, and right. so much of their profit is tied to the consumer. So they painted a pretty rosy picture about the consumer itself and said things are getting better, but at the same time, interest rates are very low. So a lot of questions on how they're going to make money from here. They said that net interest income has really kind of bottomed out in terms of the worst of it. They're, they expect it to get a little better. But at the same time, the last quarter, they brought in almost $2 billion less in net interest income than wow. they brought in the same period two years ago. 
I don't want to give everything away, Shanali, but you sent around uh, some really helpful notes this morning about bank earnings. I know you've been up for a she very was, long she time. She was working really hard this morning. Yes. <laughs> Again. <laughs> I know. It's always, you know, um, when you see when you see Shanali around the office during earnings time, bank earnings time, you know she's been up since like the wee hours of the morning. Um, but you reminded me that um, Bank of America and, and Morgan Stanley are, are the only two of the big six banks that pledged not to cut jobs in 2020. Did we hear anything more from Bank of America about not cutting jobs or making some sort of similar pledge this year? So I didn't hear that pledge this year. However, it's, it's a, it says a lot about talent retention, right? Morgan Stanley had this luxury because they cut jobs the year prior to the pandemic to downsize for hard times. It turned out to be a pretty prescient bet, right? Uh, the question now becomes, and by the way, it also it's not just how many people you keep on staff, it's how you pay them. Right. And so for Bank of America's case, you can keep all the headcount you want. How do, what does bonus season look like for the mm. top performers as well? It's a really, really tough balancing act for all of these banks that really had a banner year. And for all of the banks, they have to keep outperforming to keep the rest of Wall Street happy. They're doing all of this while they're also facing potentially new regulations. Right. And the right. Biden administration. So um, they're all on a balancing act here. I've got to say um, for the Wall Street and the Main Street Bank. And Goldman's down almost two percent. Bank of America's down about four tenths of a percent here. I don't know. You know, we have one more to go, I think, or at least one more to go. Right, Morgan, tomorrow. And I do wonder, Shanali, from what you've seen, I guess we were waiting for them. We wanted to hear what they the banks had to say about the business conditions, the outlook. Are you finding any trends? Are you finding any kind of summation that you can make some takeaways from what we're hearing from these guys? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one forward looking question here is how much of these banks, how much are these banks going to contribute to economic growth? How much are they going to lend to consumers and to small businesses? That's a political issue as well as an economic one. And you're seeing they're flooded with deposits, these banks, their lending ratios are falling. And the question is, are they getting shy here? Are they going to um, be careful, more careful as they as they take on risk from consumers and businesses moving forward? Um, You are seeing some caution, at least in the numbers. And listen, I heard you this morning talking, I think it was with Tom, but I mean, everybody's been talking about the banks and the buybacks. Are we hearing what we expected from them on that front? Yeah, pretty much. And that's the thing. I think that's why you're seeing these stocks not do so well at the end of the day, because everybody knew this was coming and it's all priced in and everybody is grasping for what the next leg is for these banks. Yeah, there's a lot of questions I feel like out there in terms of what's next. Hey, Shanali, thank you so much. It's been a long day for you, I know, and really appreciate you uh, coming in and and walking us uh, through it all. Shanali Basak, she's Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, on the phone in our New York City bureau, because she's not done yet, but she's been going strong. (laughs) I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And before we bring in our guest, uh, one of the things that we've been focusing on that certainly pertains to the financial markets is Janet Yellen, because uh, you. We're doing the play-by-play at QuickTech. You were listening to all of it. Yeah, this well, it, well, the timing was perfect because we were live from nine to ten this morning, right. and then she was scheduled to start right at ten. As things happened in Washington, it was a few minutes late, but yeah, then we streamed it live on QuickTake until our noon show, and uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting to hear, um, given that you know Yellen has has already had you know she her resume she's, is amazing. She's well known. She is, and and you know, and, and the questioning was along the lines of uh, really represented that I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, listen, former Fed chairman, uh, she's obviously uh, been nominated to be U.S. Uh, Treasury Secretary in Biden administration. And one thing I'll say, Carol, is they yeah. still haven't got the um, Google Hangouts or Zoom figured out. There were so many times when the, the picture dropped out or, or like a phone rang at, nice. at Yellen's house or somewhere. And then like the members of the finance committee were looking for senators who weren't around on Zoom. And yeah, it was still... It's like you're, it's on, new, you're new, on mute. You're on mute. Exactly. It's nice to know what happens to them like us. Okay, so she went before the Senate Finance Committee in her confirmation hearing. She was, de- she was asked and talked about a lot of different things. Uh, and in particular, President-elect Joe Biden's proposed and massive $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief plan. It's massive, but according to Janet Yellen, necessary. Neither the president-elect nor I proposed this relief package without an appreciation for the country's debt burden. But right now, with interest rates at historic lows, the smartest thing we can do is act big. And again, that was U.S. Treasury Secretary nominee and former Fed Chairman Janet Yellen today before the Senate Finance Committee in her confirmation hearing. Let's get to our guest. Kate Kara Murphy is with us, Chief Investment Officer at Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management. She is on the phone from Dallas. Kara, good to have you uh, back here uh, and with Tim and myself. So Janet Yellen, is she right in your view? I think it is important that they continue to provide support for the economy, right? There's no doubt that the COVID crisis continues, even as we're rolling out vaccines. There's no doubt that a lot of people are suffering. A lot of businesses are still struggling. Um, And what we saw is last year, the U.S. moved very aggressively and in size with both fiscal and monetary stimulus to support the economy. And it really helped. Um, and I think that's one of the big reasons why the U.S. has actually had a stronger recovery relative to some other developed countries. But as I said, it's not over. Right. We still have more work to do. Yeah. The, the Fed chair saying she sees interest rates staying low for a long time. She also mm-hmm. also mentioned climate change as a, quote, existential threat. Climate change came up really, really early in this hearing, which I thought was really notable, Kara. Um, what did you make of that? I think it's very interesting because you're right. That's not a topic that we typically hear, you know, the Federal Reserve talk about or the Treasury Secretary. But I think it does show that this is continuing to have very real economic impacts. And it's not something that we can continue to push off for, say, like another generation. Right. And didn't we hear Jay Powell last time at the press conference? It, that jumped out at you and you and I. Yeah. It was just like, whoa. He's They're starting to talk change. about things that mm-hmm. um, traditionally the Fed isn't talking about and the Treasury Secretary isn't talking about. But it creates financial risk. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. something, you know, Kara, that we've all got to pay attention to. I've got to ask you something. Uh, listen, we've been focused on the big bank earnings and you guys, Goldman Sachs, of course, reported today. I know you can't comment specifically on, on their quarter, but, you know, deal makers were a big reason why Goldman saw its highest profit in about a decade. That 
deal making that's going on, what does it tell you maybe about the bigger, broader economy? And what does it necessarily maybe mean for the investment outlook? So I think it really highlights a lot of that difference that we've talked a lot about, the difference between Wall Street and Main Street, right? So a lot of the impacts of the COVID crisis have been felt very poignantly on Main Street, right? You see like closed restaurants, you have friends who are out of work. Um, but when you look on a more macro level, these large companies who have, you know, more diversified businesses, more capital in the bank, um, they're looking further out beyond this crisis. They have a much better ability to manage through these shorter term crises. And I think that's really what you're seeing, the difference between what sometimes people feel, feel on a day-to-day basis versus the actions that we're seeing on, say, S&P 500 companies. I want to talk COVID because, there, as we've talked about a lot on, on the program, um, without getting COVID under control, the economy doesn't get under control. Obviously, investors are looking forward um, but I'm, and, and, you know, pricing in COVID getting under control. But what could derail that, Kara? So, I mean, as I said, even though we have vaccines going into people's arms today, we're not finished with this. Um, You know, we have a number of new strains that are coming out that we're watching very carefully. Um, A number of these have higher transmissibility rates. Um, And and the jury is still out on the efficacy of vaccines on some of these new strains. We think they're going to be just as effective, but we're still waiting for some more information. And then, of course, how quickly can we actually get these vaccines rolled out? Because I think we're learning how difficult a logistical challenge this really is. So so I think that the COVID situation is still something in the near term that we're watching very closely um, that could slow down the economic recovery. You know, I also do wonder, you know, I just want to go back to Janet Yellen for a moment. I mean, are you getting at all nervous in your team about the amount of money that's going out of the government? I know I, you know, I'm not going to disagree with you that I think we need to support small businesses and individuals at this point. But do you at all get a little nervous about what kind of financial state that that puts the U.S. government ultimately? So Janet Yellen talked about, you know, some factors that we look at, right? So, so debt levels are at about 100% of GDP. That's a concerning level. But when you look at debt service levels, they're among the lowest that we've seen in many decades. So the ability for the government to continue to service that debt with low interest rates is quite good. The risk is going further out. Once we're through this crisis, the government does not then rein in that spending and then interest rates have a, have a chance to rise and that debt service level becomes much more difficult to, to sustain. Um, but right now, that we think is years out. Given the inflation outlook, we think it's right. going to remain very muted in the near term. So there's room. Kara, just got 30 seconds left. Uh, your team, Goldman's team, uh, put out a note and they say use any market weakness to buy stocks. Are you... That's pretty bullish. <laughs> Are you in that camp? And just got about 20, 25 seconds. We do continue to be bullish. I know it's yeah. incredible when you look at the strength over the last you know, nine months or so, but we still see positive returns going forward. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Kara, uh, thank you so much. Kara Murphy, she's Chief Investment Officer at Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management uh, with us on the phone from Dallas. I mean, listen, you just see the market continuing to trend higher. I know. It's hard, it's hard to think about downturns when you're seeing record high after record high, right? Exactly. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.